We'll start with a question. And the question is, have you ever seen the devil? I assume the answer to that is no. And yet, the book of Revelation tells us the devil is busy in this world. Chapter 12 told us he pursues the church. He makes war on the church. But we've never seen him in person. And the explanation for that is that Satan doesn't operate alone. He works through representatives. And Revelation chapter 13, where we're going to turn this morning, is going to give us some insight into Satan's representatives. Revelation 13 is going to deal with the unholy trinity. I use the term trinity intentionally because we're going to see that Satan is an imitator. Satan deals in counterfeit. His work and the work of his representatives mimics the work of the Holy Trinity, the Father, Son, and Spirit. So if you haven't already, open your Bibles, turn to Revelation 13. In the church Bible, it's page 1242, and in the large print, 1927. We're jumping in here to the middle of a vision. Last week, if you were here last week, John saw Satan pictured as a dragon. And he watched as Satan was defeated by Jesus' death and resurrection. And then Satan was thrown down from heaven. We learned that having lost his place in heaven, Satan is now enraged at the woman. That's the church. And he's waging war against the woman's offspring. And now we come to Revelation 13. John says, The dragon stood at the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on its horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. They also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. All those whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life. The Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Whoever has ears, let them hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. 
If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. And it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of the people. Because of the signs it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast, it deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. That number is 666. This is God's word. Revelation 13 deals with two beasts. First a beast from the sea, then a beast from the earth. So this chapter is expanding on a comment that was made in chapter 12. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. Chapter 13 is showing us the devil's activity in this world. But back in chapter 10, we saw a representative of the risen Christ planting his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the earth. That picture assured us the risen Christ is Lord of earth and sea. All things in this world are under his feet. They're under his authority and control. We need to remember that picture because chapter 13 is going to tell us about Satan's power in this world. But even as we read about that, we're expected to keep in mind what we read earlier. The power of Satan and his representatives, is a limited power. It's ultimately under the power of the risen Jesus. So Satan may summon beasts from the land and the sea, but Christ is the sovereign Lord of land and sea. Chapter 13 may mention Satan's throne. But Satan's power is limited by the Almighty on his throne. So let's keep that higher throne in mind as we read this. Chapter 13 begins with the raging dragon. Having been hurled down from heaven in chapter 12, he's now standing on the shore of the sea. And he summons the first of his representatives the beast from the sea. We noticed earlier on in this book, in the ancient world, the sea was seen as a place of chaos and threat. 
It was untamed. The sea was where enemies and invaders came from. They landed on their shore in big boats and marched across your land. That's what the sea symbolized. So even before the first beast is described for us, because he comes from the sea, we know that he's going to represent aggression and threatening power. Power and aggression that serve Satan. And then John describes the beast as it rises up from the water. It had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on its horns. And on each head a blasphemous name. Chapter 12 told us the dragon had ten horns and seven heads. So the dragon's power and authority is at work through this beast. The dragon is the puppet master who stands behind the beast. And we're told there's a blasphemous name on each of the beast's heads. Blasphemy has been defined as anything that demeans or undermines or misrepresents God. So when we see God demeaned or undermined or misrepresented, we are seeing the beast at work. When a ruler or a system denies the existence of God or claims to be God, we're seeing the beast at work. When a society portrays those who believe in God as being mentally inferior or even dangerous, we're seeing the beast at work. Now at this point you might be thinking, hold on. Are we talking about an evil empire here? Or is this an individual? Or is it lots of different people? Who or what is this beast? Well, look what we're told in verse 2. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear, and a mouth like that of a lion. The background to this is found in Daniel chapter 7. In a vision there, Daniel saw four beasts coming from the sea, representing successive world empires. This beast, in John's vision, is a combination of those four beasts. And so the point is, this beast doesn't represent just one historical figure or one historical empire. No, the beast has many incarnations throughout history. Whenever a figure or empire or state or system tries to put itself in the place of God or when it blasphemes God in some other way, we are seeing the beast. And behind the beast is the dragon. Verse 2 tells us, The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. Then verse 3 confirms we're not dealing with just one leader or one government. John says, One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. As we read that, we should be thinking, does this even make sense? I know you can have a fatal wound, 
I know you can have a wound that heals, but how can you have a fatal wound that heals? Well, the answer is, the only way that you can have a fatal wound that heals is if you also have a resurrection. A fatal wound is a wound that brings death. A fatal wound that heals means a death that's followed by a resurrection. And the point is, as one satanically inspired ruler or empire falls, another rises to take its place. In John's day, the beast may well have been embodied in the Roman Empire of that time. With emperors like Nero and Domitian who persecuted Christians severely across the empire. And they were men who claimed, both of them, to be God themselves. Domitian demanded that people call him our Lord and our God. But the beast didn't go away when Domitian died. Since then, he's had many, many other incarnations. The beast keeps coming back. Just when we think he's dead, he comes back to life. And another dictator or another oppressive government. I mentioned at the beginning, Satan is an imitator. And that's what we're seeing here. This beast is anti-Christ, meaning he's opposed to Christ. And at the same time, he's mimicking Christ. Around 30 times in Revelation, Jesus is called the Lamb who was slain. That word slain is the same word translated here as fatal wound, referring to the beast. Just as Jesus returned from the dead, so the beast comes back. Just as the Almighty gave the risen Jesus power, authority and a throne... So Satan gives the beast power, authority, and a throne. There's a major difference, of course. Christ's throne is heavenly, sovereign, and eternal. The beast's throne is earthly, limited, and temporary. But for a time, each incarnation of the beast is given God-like worship. Look at the middle of verse 3. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. And they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? The sense is, what's the use of waging war against it? Who could win against this? No one. Who is like the beast? That's how the rest of the Bible speaks about God. Who is like the Lord? Meaning there's no one like him. And so here we have the height of blasphemy. Worshipping something that's not the Almighty as if it were Almighty. 
And it's certainly implied that some will adore the beast. But the main feeling here seems to be, you can never stand against the beast. He's too strong. So we'll join him. Isn't that what happens when a leader like Hitler or Stalin rises to power? Or a Kim Jong-un? They don't necessarily receive adoration from everybody, even if they are called the dear leader. But they just appear too strong. Resistance seems to be futile. And so the majority simply say, like him or not, we'll never beat him. So we'll join him. That way we'll survive. The first beast comes with Satan's daunting strength. And many just fall in line behind him for self-preservation. Verse 5. The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. All whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life. The Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Here we have another reference to this time period we've met a few times before. 42 months, or 1,260 days, or three and a half years. Representing the time of the church's witness and suffering, but also her preservation in this world. Notice that during this period, the beast is given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. Where have we heard that before? We heard it in chapter 5 about the lamb who was slain. With your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. That was the song in heaven. So the beast mimics the lamb in his worldwide reach. And the message is, those from every tribe, people, language, and nation who aren't with the Lamb are with the beast. Verse 8 says, all those whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life. If you and I have not committed our allegiance to the highest authority, Then when a lesser authority comes along who has power to hurt us and deprive us and maybe even kill us, when a lesser authority like that comes along, we'll bow to that lesser authority. But when our allegiance is with the Lamb who has ultimate authority, the one who gives eternal life, then we'll worship Him even if it means losing this present life. And so, John says, this calls 
for patient endurance and faithfulness. Verse 9, whoever has ears, let them hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. Christians throughout history have found that sometimes there's no option of complaining to your MP. There's no legal route that will deliver you from Satan's oppression. The only options are to give in to the beast or to patiently endure whatever the beast throws at you. Even prison. Even death. At this point in time, you and I don't live in a situation like that. But we need to remember that many Many of our brothers and sisters in Christ do. They live in a situation where they either join the beast or they endure his wrath. Those who endure the wrath of the beast do so because they know there's a higher authority than the beast. And so they are willing to lose now in order to win for eternity. They know the reign of the beast won't last forever. But the reign of the lamb will. And that same perspective can help us too. Because sometimes we face a little glimpse of the beast. Maybe when we're ridiculed in front of others for following Jesus. It can be so tempting in that situation to say, I can't put up with this. I can't stand up to it. I'll join them. It'll just make life easier. And it might in the short term. But when you and I are in those kind of situations, we have to ask ourselves, Would I rather be on the winning side today or am I willing to patiently endure this ridicule or whatever it is so that I can win for eternity? Well, if the first beast comes with Satan's daunting strength, the second beast is very different. Next, in this vision, John sees the beast from the earth. He comes with Satan's seductive deception. Verse 11. Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. If we compare this with the description of the first beast, this one seems a lot less threatening. For one thing, he comes from the land, not the sea. Not the place of aggression and chaos. And he's cuddly. Like a lamb. Cute. So judging by appearances, the second beast looks much less dangerous. But it speaks like a dragon. 
That doesn't mean it roars. That means he's the dragon's mouthpiece. If the first beast was Satan's sledgehammer, this guy is Satan's spin doctor, his public relations officer. The first beast rages and crushes and openly blasphemes God. The second beast is winsome. He seems reasonable. What he says seems so plausible and persuasive. He doesn't look or act like the devil incarnate. And that's why he's so dangerous. He hides his true motives. But we have to see his goal is identical to the first beast. They both work to blaspheme God and conquer his people. They just go about it in different ways. Verse 12. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. And it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of the people. Because of the signs it was given power to perform in behalf of the first beast, it deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. Again here we're seeing the unholy trinity. This beast is mimicking the work of the Holy Spirit. What is the work of the Holy Spirit? What's his job? It's to glorify Christ. And this second beast is glorifying the first beast. And we're told that he can imitate displays of the Holy Spirit's power. He can perform great signs. That should warn us about thinking displays of spiritual power must automatically mean a thing is from God. If that is our criteria for judging whether we're seeing the Holy Spirit at work, then we are opening ourselves up to be deceived. The devil and his representatives can do spiritual stuff too. They can even infiltrate the church. Jesus himself warned about that. He said, Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. Or again, False messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you in advance. So if our way of judging whether something is from God is simply to say, is it impressive? Is there power involved? Then we are opening ourselves up to be deceived. All the more so because those who deceive come dressed up as sheep. They don't look evil. And they're persuasive. Gentle often. 
So how do we judge whether something really is from the Holy Spirit? We measure it against the scriptures that have been inspired by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will not contradict himself. But the second beast, who incidentally in the rest of Revelation is called the false prophet, the second beast will contradict God's word. But he or she will do it subtly, with a gentle smile. You'll have to be alert to hear the dragon's voice behind the spin. That's why the second beast is equally, if not more dangerous than the first. And of course, the second beast doesn't only show up in the church. Like the first beast, he has many incarnations. He shows up at schools, at universities, in the media. He subtly edges belief in God further and further towards the category of laughable. And then a bit weird. And then extreme. And finally, dangerous. He works in advertising too, helping us along the road to 101 forms of idolatry. Worshipping a career, sport, sex, gadgets, amusement. Until people just have no time or energy or inclination to think about the true God. They're consumed with serving all their other little gods. Slowly and gently pushed in front of them by the second beast. And ultimately the second beast achieves by seductive deception what the first beast achieved by daunting strength. He gains power over all kinds of people. Verse 15. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads, so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast, or the number of its name. Remember who brings this about. The cute and cuddly lamb we met back in verse 11. It turns out his spin, his smooth talk, was only opening up the way for the first beast with his sledgehammer. Satan's lies might come in a harmless looking package. But in the end, they will lead us to a stark choice. Bow to me or lose your popularity or your credibility in society. Bow to me or lose your prosperity. Sometimes 
bow to me or lose your life. Today, the first beast is at work in places like Iraq and Syria, beheading Christians. The second beast is at work in our part of the world, seducing Christians to set our hearts on money and stuff and entertainment and comfort. And maybe someday soon he'll say, I know that you love all these things. But if you identify with Jesus, if you stand up and own him as your Lord, I'll take away these things you love. Then what are we going to do? You and I need to see past the cuddly exterior. We need to recognize the beast now before he springs that choice on us someday, unexpectedly. And we give in to him because we weren't prepared. This stark choice is a key to understanding the mark of the beast in verse 17. If we wonder whether this is a literal mark on our skin, then we need to remember back to chapter 7. There John saw an angel putting a mark on the foreheads of God's people. That mark will be mentioned again in chapter 14. It's presented in Revelation as the alternative mark to the beast's mark. And so the question is, do any of us who are Christians have a literal mark on our foreheads? Do you have God's name written there? Well then, if that isn't referring to a literal mark, why would we think this one is? This is a vision And what the marks in the vision represent are seals of ownership. And the point is, you're either owned by God or you're owned by the beast. If you take God's ownership, if you identify with the lamb who was slain and refuse to identify with the beast, you will probably miss out in this life in one way or another but you will prosper eternally. On the other hand, if you identify with the beast, either by bowing in fear before some blasphemous human authority, or by bowing in love to human praise and material stuff, then you will probably prosper in this life. You'll probably save your skin. You'll avoid trouble. And you'll maybe even rise in all sorts of ways. But your eternal destiny will be the same as the beast's. And so the question is, which kind of prosperity do you want? Prosperity now or prosperity for eternity? You can't always have both. 
John says, this calls for wisdom. Verse 18, let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. That number is 666. What's this about? Well, we know from other literature around this time that sometimes names or messages were coded by substituting numbers in the place of letters. It's called gematria. So, for example, the first nine letters of the alphabet are represented by the numbers one to nine. And then the rest of the alphabet is represented by higher numbers. You combine them to make numbers that represent names. And so it's very easy to turn a name into a number with the code. You just add up the numbers that represent the letters. But the problem is, it's very hard to start with the number and work backwards to find out what the name is. That's because several different names might add up to the exact same number. And realizing that should make us cautious about trying to decode 666. But as with plenty of other stuff in the book of Revelation, lots of people have been determined to try. So, for example, Nero has been announced by some people as the one behind 666. The trouble is, his name doesn't fit in the Greek language. But, if you change it into Hebrew and misspell it slightly and add the title Caesar you get 666. Amazing. Except not really. Not when you realize the gymnastics that went into making it fit. And the same goes for the long, long list of other names people have put forward over the years. Various other emperors and popes and presidents. They all involve some kind of spelling change or abbreviation or expansion so that they'll hit the right number. With a bit of ingenuity, we might be able to make Nicola Sturgeon fit. I haven't tried it. But all that means is we can't break this code. Not really. If we can play around with it until just about everybody fits, then what have we learned from the exercise? We can't break the code. And I think that's the point. 666 is not a challenge to get our calculators out to find the beast. It's a challenge to seek wisdom and insight from God. That's how we calculate when we're dealing with the beast. That's how we recognize the work and the voice of the beast in our time and place. And as for why the number is 666 and not 444 or 555, remember how the number 7 is used in Scripture as the number of completeness. We've seen the seven churches. We've seen the seven seals on the scroll. 
and the seven trumpets. Six, then, is the number that falls short of completeness. And if we ask why three sixes, well, remember how Satan tries to counterfeit the work of the Trinity. I suspect this is a way of pointing to the incompleteness and the imperfection of the unholy trinity. The dragon and the two beasts. For all of its fury, for all the temporary authority that it exercises, for all the great signs it might be able to produce, and for all of its seductive power, the unholy trinity always falls short of the glory of God. And human beings who identify with it always fall short of the glory of God. They will be condemned to eternal incompleteness. And so we need not a calculator We need wisdom. We need the wisdom that comes from listening regularly and carefully to God's word. Without that wisdom, we risk being seduced away from the glory of God. To chase after some lesser glory. So let's commit to seeking the wisdom and insight that only God can give. And let's close by reminding ourselves of the greatness and worthiness of our God. 